this, uh, in this chapter, we find uh, the prayer of a rebellious, guilty sinner who is saved by God's sovereign grace and mercy. And this is going to be um, a sermon preached by a rebellious, guilty sinner who is saved by God's sovereign grace and mercy. And the fact that we even have this book is because of God's grace. The fact that we're reading tonight what we're going to read, the words that our ears will hear, is because of God's grace. The more I dwell on Jonah, the more I realize that God did not have to use Jonah. He didn't have to. Right? Like, as soon as Jonah said, nope, don't want to do it, going the other way, God kept in like, okay, next on deck. Hey, Joel, Jonah said, no, you, you're up. He didn't have to use Jonah, but he chose to use Jonah. And, and that teaches us a lot. But God would have been completely just if he would have let Jonah sink and drown in the sea that he was fleeing on. He would have been completely just in letting that happen. But he doesn't do that. So before we read the chapter, let's do a quick recap of where we are in the story. If you, look, if you can look at verse 1-1, one, one, so Jonah chapter 1-1, one, one, uh, we see that God's word comes to man, right? And then in Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, we see man's response to God is disobedience. It's the exact opposite of what I told you to do. And then in verse 4, we see God's response to Jonah. God hurls the storm on the sea. And in verse 14, we see that the pagan sailors pray to Yahweh. And this is ironic because Jonah wouldn't pray on the boat. And in verse 16, we see God's heart for the nations. As Brody preached last week, we see these sailors come to fear and worship the one true God. And in verse 17, we see God's heart for the individual. In two verses, we see God's heart for the nations and God's heart for the individual. Because God's sovereignty is on display in verse 17 and his mercy in the very same verse, in spite of stubborn disobedience. And I really do hope, like I told, I texted Brody, Brody earlier in the week and I said, hey man, I didn't tell you Sunday, it was a great message, great sermon. Um, I've listened to it three times since Sunday just because it was so good, because it was all about God, right? And God's sovereignty and his, his providence and his power and, and what we can learn about God from chapter one. And I also told Brody, I said, hey, man, um, I'm contemplating preaching Jonah 1 again. Not that you didn't do a great job. It was awesome. But you could preach it from the man's perspective. We learned so much about God, right? But then what could we learn about man from, from chapter 1? And, and, and so, um, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to chapter 2. Um, it's just fascinating. I really do hope that you are able to dwell on God's sovereignty this week a little bit more, a little bit deeper. If you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to it. It's on the podcast. 
You can find it where you can find all your good podcasts, Apple, Spotify, online, the World Wide Web, www.redoak-church.com. It's our website. You're welcome. Um, but while I was dwelling on God's sovereignty this past week, um, I was thinking about how, how vast it is, kind of like what Zach was talking about a while ago. Like there's, there's not a square inch over the cosmos where God doesn't say that's, it's under my control. That's, that's mine. It's under my control, right? From the great fish that we read about here in the text to minnows, like God is sovereign. From the, uh, a, a candlelight flicker in a house to the brightest star in the universe, God is sovereign, right? From uh, a tiny sparrow's wings to the wings that are on the seraphim, God is sovereign over all. Even over the gnat that flew in the back of my throat today outside, God is sovereign. I don't know why he created those. I will ask him one day. But those things have, I'm just going to move on. (laughs) They're really annoying. All right, before we read chapter 2, let's let's look at uh, at verse 17 in chapter 1. It's going to lead into chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So some say that Jonah is just, it's just parabolic. It's, it's not real. It's not real. It's not history. It didn't really happen. It's just a story that we can learn something from. It's, it's, it's scientifically impossible for a man to live inside of the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Yes, it is. It's impossible. It's also impossible for a man to die and be buried and then walk out of the grave three days later. But with God, nothing is impossible. And this is what we believe, right? If you remove the supernatural, then you're just left with a tall fishtail, pun intended. The reason, the reason I believe that this is a real story, that this actually happened in history, that a man was inside of the belly of a fish, is because Jesus said he was. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is a shocking passage. But clearly, Jesus believed and knew that Jonah was a real dude, and Jonah wasn't a real fish. And he sought to see that, hey, there's an analogy here. 
or between Jonah and Jesus. And Jonah and the fish point to Jesus and the grave. Or the greater point of the story is it's not about Jonah. It's not about the fish, right? It's about Jesus. It's about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So did Jonah die and God bring him back to life? Maybe, I don't know. Could be. We just don't know. Analogies don't have, they, they don't require absolute agreement for them for, for in every detail for it to make sense. All right, so how long did Jonah sink in the water before the fish actually swallowed him? We don't know. Did the sailors see the fish? We don't know. What we do know is that Jonah recorded this prayer and gave testimony that he prayed it from the belly of the fish. So we're going to pray and then we're going to read all of chapter 2 and we're going to walk through it. So join me as we pray. Father, we do praise you tonight because you are sovereign. You are in control of all things. You hold all things together. The only reason we're in this room right now is because you're sustaining our very life and our very breath. Jesus, we praise you for coming and entering into this world and living that perfect life that we could never live, dying on the cross, sacrificing yourself, laying yourself down willingly in our place, absorbing the wrath of God in our place on the cross, being buried in the grave and rising up out of the grave alive. We praise you for being the king of life, for giving us victory over the power of sin and death. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for being with us here and now. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would increase in our minds and our hearts understanding Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that you, O oh Lord, are God alone and that salvation belongs to you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jonah chapter two, starting in verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the Lord and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, 
and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So this is the shortest chapter in the book of Jonah, which is shocking because the whole book is very short, right? Um, It's only 10 verses. Now, before you're one of those quick people that say, hey, Joseph, chapter three is only 10 verses two. You're wrong. There's actually fewer words in chapter two than chapter three. Yes, I counted. You're welcome. So this is a very brief prayer, right? A very brief prayer. And it is the theme of this chapter, right? Like we, we see God's mercy in prayer. This is Jonah's response to God's response that we saw from chapter one, right? This is, the, and, and, and one thing Brody pointed out was that this is a narrative, which is unique amongst the minor prophets. And so the, this narrative is interrupted by this prayer, which is actually a poem. And if you, like, have you ever read like a Jewish Bible? In the Hebrew Bible, this is a, a beautiful poem. It has a lot of similarities if you're familiar with the Psalms. Jonah actually quotes some psalms. And it's a prayer of thanksgiving, a psalm of thanksgiving, if you will, of a celebration of God's deliverance and, and of his mercy. And in one of my study Bibles, this is what it says. It says, with good reason, the Jews have traditionally read this book of Jonah on the Day of Atonement as part of their expression of repentance. Jews are to follow the example of the pagan sailors and wicked Ninevites who respond with repentance to prophetic preaching. It's fascinating. So we should know that this is not a prayer of repentance. Jonah doesn't repent in this prayer. We don't see that in the prayer. But we clearly see that Jonah has changed, that he's, he's not the same that he was in chapter 1. So let's walk through it line by line to see how he's different. Verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. That that right there is is different, right? He didn't pray in chapter 1. So we need to acknowledge that. This is drastically different from where he refuses to cry out to his God in front of the sailors on the ship. Instead, he'd be, he'd say, just throw me overboard. I don't want to cry out to my God. But here in chapter 2, we see the runaway praise to the God that he was trying to run away from. And it's a pretty strange place for prayer, if you think about it. The belly of a fish. Was this day one, day two, or day three in the belly of the fish? We don't know, right? But what we do know is that you can imagine the scene. I'm sure, don't get confused with VeggieTales or any other picture that you've seen of a depiction of Jonah in the belly of the fish. But just imagine how dark it was. Imagine the sounds, right? Imagine the, the gasping, the breathing, the sliminess, right? Like, the, like, like he's at death's door. And it had to smell really bad, I would imagine. I used to work at Chick-fil-A in the kitchen and I would come home and Allie would say, you smell like raw chicken. That's disgusting. Go change. But have you ever smelled fish? They smell worse than raw chicken, right? Have you ever been to a pier where a bunch of people are fishing, cutting up fish? 
Maybe you've been to a, a fish market before, right? The worst place I've ever been in my entire life for smells was in Myanmar, Burma at a fish market outside in the heat, no ice, gross, smelled horrible, right? So imagine the scene. It's dark, it's smelly, it's slimy, it's desperate. Maybe your scene is a little different where you are right now. Maybe you haven't ran from the Lord geographically. You're not running from him. But maybe in your heart, you're sprinting. Maybe you're in a really dark place. Maybe you're desperate and you need to cry out to the Lord. Now, this is not the ideal place, it seems, like for prayer. But Jonah prays. Look at verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Of course you're distressed, right? He's surprised he's alive. He had just been sinking in the sea. What's shocking about this verse is that God answers him. This is unbelievable. He didn't deserve to be answered. He didn't beg for mercy. He wasn't saying, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for disobeying you, for running away from you, for not listening and obeying right away and with a happy heart. He simply cries out to the Lord for help, and God answers him. This is a great lesson for all of us. God listens to the cries of his people. He listens to the cries of his people. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So Jonah's circumstances have changed, right? He's not sleeping comfortably in the ship anymore. You remember, he's in the belly of a fish. And he uses this word, Sheol. This is a Hebrew word, which means the grave. The belly of the fish, instead of being his grave, turned into his prayer closet. He could have had a watery grave, right? He could have died at sea, but God was merciful. He could have had a smelly grave and been digested in the belly of the fish, but God is merciful and supernaturally preserves him. Look at the end of verse 2. God mercifully hears his voice. He answers. He hears. Whether you shout, whisper, cry, groan, the Lord hears your prayer. Oswald Chambers said, prayer is not a way to get things from God, but so that we may get to know God. Prayer is not to be used as the privilege of a spoiled child seeking ideal conditions to indulge his spiritual propensities. The purpose of prayer is to reveal the presence of God equally present at all times and in every condition, end quote. If there was ever a man who understood that prayer is not for ideal conditions, it was Jonah. The beautiful thing about prayer is that there's never a place where it's wrong. There's never a place where prayer is out of place. There's never a bad time to pray. Now, some, and this is weird for us, because sometimes we know 
when it's the wrong time to talk to somebody. Right? Sometimes we know um, when you've sinned against your spouse and it, they're not ready for you to speak to them yet. Right? Or your friend made you mad and you don't want to see their face. You don't want to hear their voice. They're not ready to listen to you. They don't want to hear anything you have to say. Or if your kid is in a rage and you know they won't listen to what you have to say. Now they hear you yelling and trying to talk to them, but they will not listen to what you have to say. God is not like that. He's not like any of those situations. We don't need to give God time and space. He's always approachable. He's always ready. He's always listening. You always have his ear. Always. There's never a place where we can go where God is not there. There's never a condition we can find ourselves in where it's not a good time to pray. Whatever our circumstances are, God's present and we have his ear. And the purpose of prayer is to know him and to be with him. Look at verse three. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Wait, I thought the sailors threw Jonah in. Here, Jonah doesn't blame them for tossing him overboard. He sees God's hand in the scene. Jonah credits God's sovereignty for what has happened. Jonah credits God for where he currently is. Kind of like Joseph, if you remember in the Genesis study, when his brothers threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery, right? Joseph doesn't blame them for the horrible years following that. But Joseph gives credit to God for where he is. If you remember Genesis 45, verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, Joseph tells his brothers. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God's sovereign hand. God hurled Jonah into the sea. God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And by the way, we know it wasn't a well because there's a different Hebrew word for well and fish. He doesn't use well. It's actually a fish, not a well. It doesn't matter what kind of fish it is. It was just a fish. There's plenty of big fish that can swallow a man. Plenty of big fish. Jonah didn't get the memo from God that it was a fish that was coming to rescue him. Look at verse three in the middle. It says, the flood surrounded me. This is God's judgment, right? The, the storm was a supernatural storm that God made and hurled onto the sea in judgment for Jonah's disobedience and rebellion. Likewise, Jonah recalls sinking 
into the waters surrounding him and knows that God's judgment is all-encompassing, much like the flood in Genesis covering all of the earth was God's holy wrath and judgment. All of your waves, all of your billows passed over me. Jonah's using vivid imagery of being completely covered up, surrounded, helpless, darkness all around. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in the ocean, the deeper you go, the darker it gets. I remember being sucked out and caught into a riptide when I was a kid. And I was helpless. I was a pretty decent swimmer, but I was helpless. I couldn't get out of it. My father had to pull me out. Jonah's remembering the waves and the billows and knows. And he acknowledges here in the prayer, these are your waves. These are your waves, O Lord. These are the Creator's waves. These are the Lord's billows surging and crashing over me in the sea. Jonah's recalling, he's remembering the utter chaos that he found himself in. Even when we are in chaos, even when our circumstances are dire, God is still in control. This rebellious servant experiences the Father's loving discipline. He's still in the Father's hand. This is the best place to be. And we would not, no one would say, hey, put me in the belly of the fish. But this is the best place for Jonah to be, was in God's will, in God's hand. Look at verse four. I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. We deserve to be driven away from God's sight. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion and disobedience, we deserve separation from a holy God. Separation from his presence, which is absolutely horrible. Jonah knew this to be true in his heart of hearts. We deserve separation from the creator, from the one who is sovereign, the author of life. But God is merciful and kind. And now Jonah longs for that which he was running from the holy temple where God's presence was, where God dwelled with his people, where the people would go to pray and worship and offer sacrifices. The Jewish people reading this prayer would be reminded of their own rebellion and of God driving them out in exile and then being swallowed up by other nations. Yet this verse would give them hope yet they would see again the Lord's holy temple and know that they could know God because the purpose of prayer is to know God, to be in his presence. When you experience the presence of the Father, you don't want to leave. There's no sweeter place than communion and intimacy with the Father. I know this is super old, older than some people in the room, but has anybody ever seen the movie The Patriot? Some of you are like, a thousand times. It came out in the year 2000, so it's a fairly old movie. Mel Gibson film, right? It's a really good movie. Anybody agree? Yeah, a lot of hand raises, nods. It's a great film. Me and Allie watched it again recently. 
Um, it's about Benjamin Martin, who's a father of seven children. His wife passed away, probably while having the seventh child. Um, and the, the seventh child's name, little girl, her name is Susan. And um, she is just completely distraught and, ha- and doesn't talk to her father, doesn't have a good relationship with her father, doesn't know him very well for a lot of the movie. She, she, he has never heard her say a word. And the whole movie is about the American Revolution. He's fighting, defending his family from the British. Okay, the whole movie, he's fighting to protect his family. And he comes home for a week of leave to get some rest with his family, to spend time with them. And the whole time, his daughter still never speaks to him until he's about to return. And before he leaves to go back to war, he wants her to speak to him. And he goes up and he hugs everybody, he kisses everybody. And she won't say a word to him. She won't even hug him. It breaks his heart, right? He's heartbroken and he's about to leave. He gets on his horse with his oldest son. He's riding away. This is by far the most moving part of the whole movie, in my opinion. His youngest daughter sees him riding away and she runs after him. She says, Papa, Papa, don't leave. Don't go. I'll say anything. I love you. Don't go. Right, and he jumps down and he goes and he hugs her. Man, I don't even have daughters and that tears me up. When you've experienced the presence of the Father, when you've had intimacy with the Father, you don't want him to leave. You don't want to leave. You want to talk to him. You want to be in his presence. You want to see him. I wonder if we view prayer this way. Do we view the Father this way? He's a loving, kind, good Father. Always there, always willing, always ready, never leaves. There's never a doubt that he might not return. He's always there. Do we enjoy spending time in his presence? Do we love communing with him? Verse 5 returns to vivid imagery. Jonah's not done talking about being in the water. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land where, whose bars closed upon me forever. So here he recalls sinking in the sea. And I imagine this was probably a slow sink. He had a long time to think and process the consequences of his rebellion. Remember, he didn't know the fish was going to come. And God would have been 100% just in letting him sink and letting him drown. But he doesn't. He does, however, allow him to experience sinking. He allows him to experience being surrounded by darkness in the deep. He allows him to hit rock bottom. I know this is going to upset some people in the room, but I hate the ocean. I despise the ocean. I think it's absolutely terrifying. 
Um, and I don't know people who do love the ocean, who love seaweed. And who are like, I love it when I'm swimming and the seaweed get, get, it touches my leg, you know, or gets wrapped around. You, when, it, when anything touches you in the water, it's unnerving, right? You're like, what was that? Or have you ever been to a, an ocean where there's a ton of seaweed? It's not fun to swim in. Nobody wants to play in the water, right? Because it's slimy and gross. And it gives you the heebie-jeebies. It's awful. Jonah thought that the seaweed was going to be his grave clothes. But God doesn't grant Jonah his death wish. But he does allow him to feel trapped, to feel like he's helpless. And in his prayer, he recalls hitting the sandbars and everything closing in upon him. This is his rock bottom moment, if you will. And he knows that he will perish apart from God's mercy. He will. Look at verse six. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. So Jonah gives God credit right here. God delivered Jonah. Only God could rescue Jonah. There was no swimming out of the situation. Right? God doesn't say, hey, Jonah, if you swim up to the surface and make your way to the shore, then I'll save you. I'll rescue you. That's not what happens here. That's impossible. Jonah couldn't save himself. And we should see here that we can't save ourselves. Only the Lord saves. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Right? Jonah, we can say with certainty that Jonah had temporary spiritual amnesia. He had forgotten to fear the Lord. But near-death experiences cause us to contemplate life, to cry out to God. You ever heard the phrase, there's no atheists in foxholes? There's no atheists on airplanes either. You ever experienced turbulence on an airplane? People start praying out loud. And they never prayed before. That, that's true. It happens. Jonah remembers the Lord, his God, even when he wasn't in the temple. He prays to God. We don't have to be in a special building to pray for our God to hear us. Thank the Lord for that. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In the King James Version, verse 8 says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. One commentator said, Jonah probably makes this statement for those later who would read and hear this proclamation. It seems to be a statement to God's people, the Israelites. He's reminding them as they're reading this, and it's fascinating to think that they would read this every year, the Day of Atonement. He's reminding them of the vanity of idols. Idols are not sovereign. Idols do not create. They have to be created. Idols don't hear if you cry out to them. Just ask the sailors. Idols do not deliver you if you pray to them. Idols do not have mercy, and they do not answer because they cannot. 
And finally, we come to the rightful response to steadfast love, grace, and mercy. Let's look at it together in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This right here is a declaration of truth. Right? It's a proclamation of trust. Salvation is of the Lord. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. You can't save anybody else. It was absolutely nothing that Jonah did to deserve being saved. In fact, the opposite is true. Right? Jonah learned this gigantic theological truth in the belly of a gigantic fish. It's a strange classroom to learn such a magnificent truth, right? And we learn deep things about God in the depths of affliction. And I know this to be true just from talking to many people over the course of my life. Many people over and over again will say, I learned the most about God when I walked through the darkest valley of my life. Charles Spurgeon, not one who was unfamiliar with deep, dark valleys, said this, most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction. Otherwise, we will not truly receive them. There are many things to be learned in the depths that we could never know in the heights. That's so true. And unless one comes to see and acknowledge the helpless nature of man, we'll never be able to declare the beauty of the gospel of grace. Unless you see how filthy and gross and putrid we are apart from Christ, we'll never be able to see how beautiful and clean and pure the gospel is. And Jonah knew that God and God alone could save. I wonder if you know that tonight. This is a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of sacrifice and vows made, which is a rightful response to God's saving grace and sovereign mercy. Ironically, Jonah is responding much like the sailors did in verse 16 in chapter 1. He fears the Lord now. He's offering sacrifice and, and he's made vows. Jonah would have rather died than prayed for the storm to stop. He would have rather died than repent. But now he's praying and giving thanks and making sacrifices and vows. He went from slumbering comfortably in the boat to sinking uncontrollably in the sea. He learned that trusting in anything or anyone else is pointless. How humbling a feeling it must have been to thrash around surrounded by dark waters, sinking in the depths. How humbling a place it would be to be in the belly of a beast of the sea, swallowed by a creature that your creator made to do his will when you would not. And as we look at verse 10, how this chapter ends, we see God's creature yet again obeying him immediately. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Can you imagine how absolutely disgusting Jonah looked? 
and how he smelled. Imagine how he felt. I don't know if anybody saw it. That'd be a scene, right? (laughs) Isn't that Jonah on the shore? What the heck was that all about? Odd form of transportation. By God's grace, the fish served as God's instrument to deliver Jonah safely. Ironically, the fish obeys when Jonah would not. So this is God's sovereignty and mercy on display yet again. It's also God's grace. He's a God of second chances. Amen? The same Lord who spoke to the fish. I don't, this tore me up this week. The same Lord who spoke to the fish is the same one who walked out of the grave. Jesus was way more alive and he smelled way better than Jonah did when he walked out of that grave. Salvation belongs to the Lord. A gracious gift, mercifully wrapped, given by sovereign, nail-scarred hands. I need it. You need it. We all need it. Because we've all ran away. We've all disobeyed. We've all been like Jonah, every single one of us, disobedient, rebellious, deserving of his wrath. But God responds to us when we were helpless in our own sin by sending Jesus. So how will you respond tonight? The father hurled his wrath on his son on the cross. We see God's judgment and mercy on display in the story of Jonah. And likewise, we see God's judgment and mercy on display at the cross of Christ. The waves of God's wrath crashed over Jesus and Jesus took our sin down to the depths. But Jesus was able to bring up his own life from the pit, our Lord, our God. Pastor Eric Redmond said this, God raised Christ from the dead because the grave could not hold him down. On this basis, the Lord is able to offer mercy to all of us. God's mercy is so great that he would hurl Christ into the depths of Sheol as one forsaken so that we who are rightly forsaken in our rebellion could be saved. There's only one right response to this God of justice, mercy, love, and grace. And that's for us to cry out to him in prayer, in repentance, in thanksgiving, because we have his ear. So don't run away. Don't run from him. Go to him in prayer. I'll close with this quote from Pastor Steve Lee. If we are in a Jonah-like season of rebellion, we too can pray. Even if we've been in a decades-long season of fleeing from God, running from his presence, and resisting his call, we are invited to come, lay down our rebellion, and be immersed, not in judgment, but in love. God wants to pour out mercy on you, and then through you to all other sinners so that they too might repent and be delivered. 
Man, our God hears the prayers of rebellious, guilty sinners. We need to cry out to him and acknowledge that salvation belongs to him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge right now that there is life in no other name than yours, Jesus. We praise you for absorbing the wrath of your Father in our place. What we rightfully deserved, you took for us. Our penalty, our shame, our guilt, our rebellion, you absorbed that on yourself so that we could experience intimacy with the Father. Jesus, thank you so much for taking my place. And thank you that you didn't have to be rescued because you had the power to come up out of that grave, to give me life, joy, peace, purpose, meaning, we have a reason to live because of you, Jesus. We praise you tonight for your word. We praise you for hearing the prayer of Jonah and for teaching us by preserving this word for us that we could read and study tonight, that you hear the prayers of guilty, rebellious sinners because you're merciful and you're good, and you're always there, and you're always ready. You're always listening, and we praise you because you're worthy to be praised. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.